0: Adams. Here. Adam Lee.
1: Here.
0: Adamowski. Adamson.
1: Here. Adler. Here.
0: Anderson. Anderson. Here. Bueller. 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 Bueller.
1: Um, he's sick. My best friend's sister's boyfriend's
2: brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows this kid is going with the girl who saw Ferris pass out at 31 Flavors last night. I guess it's pretty serious.
0: Thank you, Simone.
2: No problem whatsoever.
0: Fry.
3: Hello, everyone, and welcome to How Is This Movie. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at How Is This Movie, like us on Facebook at Facebook.com/slash How Is This Movie, visit our website, howisthismovie.net. And you can always email me with questions and comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. Now, when you're 16 years old, there are far few things more important to you than your social circle in high school. At 37 years old, I wish I could go back and tell a 16-year-old me that only a few years later, you'll look back at that issue as pretty much absurd. But nevertheless, my high school friends were very important to me. Now, the high school I attended had around 1,000 students and a somewhat small cafeteria. So in order to accommodate all the students, lunchtime was split into two parts, lunch A and lunch B, with each being an hour long. Now, on my first day as a junior, I was excited to get to school. I was finally an upperclassman and could carry my head a little higher walking down the hall. When I arrived at my homeroom class, after the teacher took roll call, she handed out individual class schedules. As I was looking over the schedule, I saw... The required classes, English, Algebra 2, French 2, and some of my electives, including Drama 3. I also noticed that I had been assigned Lunch A. As the morning proceeded and lunch arrived, I went to the cafeteria, stood in line, chose the square pizza option over the big salad option, the square pizza option also included tater tots, sliced peaches, and chocolate milk. Look, I know what you're thinking, and yes, I believe high school lunches have gotten a lot healthier throughout the years. As I paid my dollar twenty-five, I headed to the usual table my friends and I sat at. But to my surprise, the table was full of people I didn't know. In fact, standing there looking around... I was shocked to find out that none of my friends were anywhere to be seen. The cafeteria was loaded with freshmen and sophomores. Where the hell is everyone, I kept thinking to myself. Frustrated, I sat at an empty table that quickly filled up with first-day freshmen. They looked at me as some type of mythical god. Look, we're eating lunch with an upperclassman, their eyes read. Trying my best to keep to myself, I grabbed a textbook and began reading. There was two bells that would ring. The first bell was to let us know that lunch A was over, and also to let the students that have lunch B know it's time to head to the cafeteria. The second bell was to let lunch A students know that they should be in their next class. The two bells were five minutes apart, so there was a small window where the entire school would be in the hallways. As I headed out of the cafeteria, there was my group of friends heading to the cafeteria. What the hell, Dana, my buddy John said. You have lunch A? How did that happen? I have no idea, I replied. John looked at me smiling and said, well, we'll see you next year, hopefully. Now, what happened next was probably not the best idea I've ever come up with, but at that moment, I made a decision. The decision was to join my friends in the cafeteria for lunch B. My thought process at the time was simple. I would pretend that I didn't know what lunch I was in, and if I got caught, I would just play dumb. So I sat with my friends and had a great time. The class I was skipping was English. So when lunch B was over, I proceeded to my next class. While in class, I was nervously waiting for my name to be called over the PA system. But it never happened. So the next day at school, I went to lunch, sat at the same table with the same group of freshmen who were now eager to hear me give advice on how to survive your freshman year. When lunch A was over, I met my friends in the hallway and made the decision to do one more lunch B. I mean, come on. I didn't get caught. So, what's one more day? I would love to tell you that I smartened up and started attending English class on the third day, but the reality is I didn't. And before you knew it, I was into my second month of school, still doing both lunches. I had somehow fallen through the cracks of the school attendance system, and nobody seemed to notice that I was absent from English class. Well, nobody except a few cafeteria workers who started to look at me a little funny as the weeks went on. By mid November, I was thoroughly convinced that I was going to be able to pull this off for the entire school year. However, everything did change that mid-November when I was sitting in my homeroom class and the principal was giving the morning address over the PA system. He announced that quarterly report cards will be handed out today and to remember to have your parents sign the report card envelope. Then he closed out his morning announcements by saying, and will Dana Buckler please report to my office immediately? Oh, shit. Now, by this time, several of my classmates were hip to my scheme, and my classmates all turned and looked at me. Some of them started the infamous, "Uh uh-oh, that every high school student would understand. My teacher looked at me and said, you heard him, let's go. As I got out of my desk and walked past the teacher, she stopped me and whispered, You didn't really think you were going to get away with this, did you, Dana? Not saying anything, I continued out the door and down the hallway. Now, I have walked those hallways every day for the past three years, and it would normally take less than a minute to make it to the principal's office. But I tell you this, it took me at least ten minutes to get there. I was wandering aimlessly through the hallways, back and forth past the principal's office. My mind was racing. I was trying desperately to come up with some kind of excuse. I even tricked myself into thinking that maybe he wanted to see me for a different reason altogether. I took a deep breath, exhaled, opened the door, walked up to the principal's secretary and said, Mr. Rowe asked to see me? She looked at me and said, Why, yes, Dana, he's expecting you. Go on in. I gently knocked on the inner door of the office that read, Mr. Rowe, Principal and Dean of Students. Come in, he said. Oh, Mr. Buckler, have a seat. I sat in one of those prefabricated rigid plastic chairs. He began to speak to me. You know, Mr. Buckler, I've been doing this job for 25 years. I've caught students smoking in the bathrooms. I've stopped students from fighting. I've caught students stealing from other students. And of course, I've caught students skipping school. But this is a first. I have never caught a student who was hiding in plain sight. My hat is off to you, son. You made it pretty far, and I bet you thought you would have gotten away with it. But there's one thing you weren't counting on. He then proceeded to hold up my report card. You know, Mr. Buckler, you're an above-average student in most of your classes. A's and B's for the most part. But there's one grade that's troubling me. It's this one right here under English. I looked closely at the two letters. N.P. Mr. Rowe then said, Do you know what N.P. stands for? I shook my head no. Not present. You see, Mr. Buckler, I review every student's report card. It's my job. So when I see a NP, well, every other class has a decent grade, I get concerned. So I launched my own investigation and kept an eye on you for the past week. My heart sank into my stomach. Oh, no, I mumbled. Oh, no, Is right, Mr. Rowe replied. Because, you see, you were skipping class. And even though you attended every other class, you still violated the rules. And the rules state that if you skip more than five days in a row... That's considered delinquent behavior, and it's turned over to the juvenile court system. Oh. My. God. So, Mr. Buckler, I've taken the liberty of notifying your parents to let them know that you have a court date next Monday at 1 p.m. And yes, you will be excused from that day as you're suspended until the day after your court date. Now, off the record, Mr. Buckler, I commend you for your attempt. You didn't brag about what you were doing to other students, and that's probably why you made it so far. I said to him, what will happen when I go to court? Mr. Rowe replied, Well, that's up to the judge, son. You can go now. I opened the door to his office, and there was my father, and he was not smiling. As you can imagine, the following five days leading up to my day in court were met with an insane amount of what I call hard labor. We had a nice property that became incredibly well-maintained in those five days. Now, as for my day in court, I arrived at the courthouse at 1230, sat in the courtroom. This was my first time in a real courtroom, and I was pleasantly surprised with how authentic the courtroom looked. At exactly 1 p.m., the bailiff yelled out, All rise. When we were standing, the bailiff yelled out again, You are in a court of law. You will respect this room. Anyone wearing any kind of hat, you are to remove your hat, or we will remove you from this courtroom. The Honorable Judge Clay now presiding. The judge sat down. And to give you some kind of idea of how much things have changed, the judge had a cigar in his hand. I kid you not. I wasn't sure how the whole thing was going to play out. You see, I wasn't arrested or charged with any crime. I was just ordered to see the judge. Well, I didn't have much time to think about it because the first thing the judge said after telling everyone to be seated is, where is Dana Buckler? I stood up, raised my hand, and he said, come here, son. I stood about four feet from his bench, which towered over me. He looked down and said, I understand you've been skipping school. Part of me wanted to say, objection, your honor. I wasn't technically skipping as I never left the school grounds. But given the gravity of the situation, I simply nodded and said, yes, sir. He looked at me and paused for five seconds. And then he said, are you planning on doing this again? Uh, No, sir. No, your honor. Never. He looked at me, paused again. Okay, make sure you don't. Uh, Yes, sir. Okay, you can go now. Really? I was thinking, that's it? Uh, uh, Thank you, your honor. I turned around and walked out of the courtroom. As I walked out of the courthouse with my dad, we got into the car. He turned and looked at me and said, don't think you're Ferris Bueller right now, because you're not. And we drove away. In 1979, screenwriter John Hughes wrote a pilot episode for a TV show called The Delta House. It was a show that was loosely based on the hit movie National Lampoon's Animal House. The show only lasted one season, and it was initially a hit with audiences, but due to constant bickering between the network and the producers of the show, and more importantly, the raunchy content of the show, it was ultimately canceled after 13 episodes. Three years later, Hugh's first movie screenplay was made into a film, 1982's National Lampoon's Class Reunion. The film was a critical and financial failure. But undeterred, Hughes continued churning out more screenplays, and in 1983, John Hughes had his first taste of real Hollywood success. First, with Mr. Mom, starring Michael Keaton, and second, National Lampoon's Vacation.
4: Dad, this is not the car you ordered.
5: Take it easy, Rusty. Ed, uh, this is not the car I
2: ordered. I distinctly ordered the uh, Antarctic Blue Super Sportswagon with the CB and the optional Rally Fun Pack. You didn't order the, uh, Metallic P? Metallic P? No, Antarctic Blue. The sports wagon. This isn't even the right model. You know, I think you're right. I don't think this is the car. This is the new Wagon Queen family truckster. This is a, this is a damn fine automobile. If you want my honest opinion, beats the hell out of the sports wagon. But I want to make you happy, huh? Davenport! I'll get to the bottom of this. Yes, Mr. Ed. Mr. Griswold ordered a blue sports wagon. Where is it? I don't know, sir. I know what must have happened. It didn't come in.
0: Ed, I'm not
2: your ordinary, everyday fool, okay? Now, I'd like my Antarctic Blue Super Sports Wagon right now, and if you can't get it for me, I'm going to take my business elsewhere. Where's my old car? I'm just as upset as you are, believe me. Davenport! Get Mr. Griswold's car back and bring it back here! I can get you the wagon. There's no problem there. The problem is it might take six weeks. Now, I owe it to myself to tell you, Mr. Griswold, that if you're thinking of taking the tribe cross-country, this is the automobile you should be using, the Wagon Queen family truckster. You think you hate it now, but wait till you drive it. I don't want to drive it. I just want my old car back, okay?
4: I'm not falling for this bit. No way. Let's go, Russ.
3: The script that Hughes wrote for Vacation was based on a short story he wrote several years earlier called Vacation 1958. In the fictional short story, Hughes tells the tale of a family's cross country trip to Disneyland that ends with his father shooting Walt Disney after finding out the park was closed. In 1984, Hughes sat down in the director's chair for the very first time. He directed and wrote the screenplay for 16 Candles. The movie, which starred Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall, would become the first in a series of coming of age teen comedies that redefined the genre. You say
2: it's your
1: birthday. It's my Okay.
4: Hey, June. Just stop it, okay? I mean, it's really been a shitty birthday for me. No offense, but I don't need a serenade right now.
1: What's wrong? You didn't get anything good, or?
4: I didn't get shit. Not even a happy birthday. My whole family just sort of blew it off.
1: I'd freak if my family forgot my birthday.
4: It's a brand new year. I'm 16. Everything should be platinum. I should be happy, right? Right? Yeah. Well, I can't get happy. It is physically impossible for me to get happy.
1: Would you feel better if you knew one of my secrets? Or?
4: Don't gross me out.
1: No, we're not talking gross here. No, it's just—it's just embarrassing. This information cannot leave this room, okay? It would devastate my reputation as a dude.
4: No problem. <clears throat>
1: I've never bagged a babe. I, <laughs> I got the rap in sixth grade, and it, like, I mean, it stuck with me. I'm still on hold. <laughs> Look, I appreciate you not laughing at me, okay?
4: <laughs> I'm sorry.
3: Sixteen Candles received high praise for its depiction of teen angst, and Hughes was credited with being the first director to truly understand the teenage mind. The film was also successful at the box office with a budget of just a little more than $6 million and taking in over $30 million in the U.S. box office alone. 1985 saw three separate projects for John Hughes. First, he wrote the sequel to 1983's Vacation, National Lampoon's European Vacation, a film that was panned by critics but still a solid success at the box office. Next was Weird Science, the second film directed by Hughes. Working with Anthony Michael Hall once again, Weird Science, the story of two teens that, through the wonders of computer technology, create a real woman, was another financial success.
1: Okay, look, you know how you're always talking about how you can simulate all that stuff on your computer? You know? What's the difference? Why can't we simulate a girl?
2: I don't know. I, I guess I could, but why? It's two-dimensional on the screen. It's, it's not flesh and blood, Gary. Well, I know that but you know we can we can use it why?
1: We can ask it questions. We can we can put it in real life sexual situations and see how it reacts. You're like we're sick to manage shit. You'd love it.
2: Well, what about your girl in um Canada?
1: She was in Canada. this Girls no morals, you know. I don't I don't like that. On a girl I, it's rough having that kind of relationship, you'll see. <clears throat> anyway, get to work.
3: And I will tell you that the film firmly sits on my list of one of the 10 funniest movies of all time. The third film that Hughes directed, also released in 1985, was to many Hughes' true breakout film. The Breakfast Club, starring Molly Ringwald, Anthony Michael Hall, Judd Nelson, Emilio Estevez, and Ali Sheedy, had a simple premise. Five students, each representing a different high school stereotype, have to serve a day-long Saturday detention.
4: Well, well, here we are. I want to congratulate you for being on time. Excuse me, sir. I think there's been a mistake. I know it's detention, but, um, I don't think I belong in here. It is now 7.06. You have exactly 8 hours and 54 minutes to think about why you're here. To ponder the error of your ways. And you may not talk. You will not move from these seats. And you will not sleep. All right, people, we're going to try something a little different today. We are going to write an essay of no less than a thousand words describing to me who you think you are.
5: This is a test.
4: And when I say essay, I mean essay. I do not mean a single word repeated a thousand times. Is that clear, Mr. Bender? Crystal. Good. Maybe you'll learn a little something about yourself. Maybe you'll even decide whether or not you care to return.
1: Uh, you know, I can answer that right now, sir. You know, that'd be no, no for me, because... Sit down,
4: Johnson. Thank you, sir. My office is right across that hall. Any monkey business is ill-advised. Any questions?
1: Yeah, I got a question.
4: Does Barry Manilow know that you raid his wardrobe? Give you the answer to that question, Mr. Bender, next Saturday. Don't mess with the bull, young man. You'll get the horns.
3: Although some of Hughes' other screenplays that were adapted into movies were heavy on adult language, this was the first R-rated film that he directed, and many consider this to be one of the most important high school films ever made. It's another film that, although dated by hairstyles, clothing, and lack of modern technology, is still relevant in its themes and the struggles that the five students endure. The Breakfast Club was the third highest-grossing film directed by John Hughes. That brings us to 1986. Another screenplay written by Hughes, Some Kind of Wonderful, was made into a film that year, also received. Some strong praise and modest box office success. Now, John Hughes had an idea for the next movie that he wanted to direct. He wanted to make a love letter to the city of Chicago. Now, most of Hughes' films took place in a fictional town called Shermer, Illinois, but Hughes was always in awe and bewilderment by the second city where he grew up. The concept of a teenager skipping school to spend the day in Chicago was the perfect hook that Hughes needed to make this tribute to the city he loved. Hughes pitched the idea to studio heads who immediately gave him the go-ahead. But, However, there was one issue. The Writers Guild of America was threatening a lengthy strike, and Hughes had two options. Either wait to see what happens with the Writers Guild, knowing that you weren't allowed to write during the strike, or in a move that was unprecedented, write the script before the Guild goes on strike. He chose the second option and wrote the first and what would ultimately be the final draft of Ferris Bueller's Day Off in just under a week. So with the Writers Strike no longer an issue, Hughes could comfortably move into pre-production on Ferris Bueller's Day Off. First up was casting. Now Hughes has stated that when he wrote the script, he'd always intended Matthew Broderick to play Ferris. However, Tom Cruise, Jim Carrey, and Emilio Estevez were also in the running in the event that Broderick passed on the project. Now, thankfully for all of us, Broderick jumped at the chance to play Bueller, a character that constantly broke the fourth wall and spoke to the audience.
2: Incredible. One of the worst performances of my career, and they never doubted it for a second. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? This is my ninth sick day of this semester. It's getting pretty tough coming up with new illnesses. If I go for 10, I'm probably going to have to barf up a lung. So I better make this one count. The key to faking out the parents is the clammy hands. It's a good non-specific symptom. I'm a big believer in it. A lot of people will tell you that a good phony fever is a deadlock, but uh, you get a nervous mother, you could wind up in a doctor's office. That's worse than school. You fake a stomach cramp, and when you're bent over, moaning and wailing, you lick your palms. It's a little childish and stupid, but then, so is high school. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it.
3: For the role of Sloane Peterson, Ferris's girlfriend, Molly Ringwald had expressed interest in playing the part. But Hughes told her that she was too big of a star at the time to play what he considered a somewhat minor role. The role of Sloane went to then-18-year-old Mia Sarah. Actor Alan Ruck had auditioned for the role of Bender in The Breakfast Club, the role that ultimately went to Judd Nelson. Hughes always remembered Ruck and offered him the role of Cameron Fry. Now, Ruck was reluctant to take the part due to the fact that he was 29 years old at the time. Hello?
2: Cameron, babe, what's happening?
5: Very little.
2: How do you feel? Shredded. Is your mother in the room?
5: She's in Decatur. Unfortunately, she's not staying.
2: Where are you? I'm taking the day off. Now get dressed and come on over. You can't, stupid. I'm sick. (sighs) That's all in your head. Come on over. I feel like complete shit, Ferris. I can't go anywhere. I'm sorry to hear that. Now come on over here and pick me up. Think of anything good to do. If anybody needs a day off, it's Cameron. He has a lot of things to sort out before he graduates. Can't be wound up this tight and go to college. His roommate will kill him. When Cameron was in Egypt's land,
0: let my Cameron go.
3: Jeffrey Jones was cast in the role of Edward R. Rooney dean of students jones had caught the eye of hughes after his part in amadeus rooney was a pivotal character who seemed to be immune to ferris's charms
5: i don't trust this kid any further than i can throw him
2: well with your bad knee ed you shouldn't throw anybody it's true
5: what is so dangerous about a character like ferris bueller is he gives good kids bad ideas Uh uh-huh last thing I need at this point in my career is 1,500 Ferris Bueller disciples running around these halls. He jeopardizes my ability to effectively govern this student body.
2: Well, makes you look like an ass is what he does, Ed.
5: Thank you, Grace. I think you're wrong.
2: Oh, well, he's very popular, Ed. The sportos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wastoids, dweebies, dickheads. They all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude.
5: That is why I have got to catch him this time. To show these kids that the example he sets is a first-class ticket to nowhere.
2: Oh, Ed, you sounded like Dirty Harry just then. Really? Uh-huh.
3: Jennifer Grey plays Jeannie, Ferris's sister who is wise to his antics and feels betrayed by parents who always seem to take Ferris' side.
4: You get to school. Wait, you're letting him stay home? I can't believe this. If I was bleeding out my eyes, you guys would make me go to school. This is so unfair.
2: Jeannie, please don't be upset with me. You have your health. Be thankful. Oh. Hmm.
4: Oh. That's it. I want out of this family.
3: One of the funniest moments of the movie almost didn't happen. The now famous role of the economics teacher went to Ben Stein, who had no previous acting experience. His original scene was to have him just do the morning roll call, but when Hughes heard him off camera talking economics to the extras, he quickly put together another scene in which he is teaching the class the very topic that Hughes heard Stein discussing off camera. In
0: 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the... Anyone? Anyone? The Great Depression passed the, anyone? Anyone? A tariff bill, the Hawley-Smoot Tariff Act, which anyone raised or lowered, raised tariffs in an effort to collect more revenue for the federal government. Did it work? Anyone? Anyone know the effects? It did not work, and the United States sank deeper into the Great Depression. Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone seen this before? The Laffer Curve. Anyone know what this says? It says that at this point on the revenue curve, you will get exactly the same amount of revenue... As at this point, this is very controversial. Does anyone know what Vice President Bush called this in 1980? Anyone? Something D.O.O. economics. Voodoo economics.
3: There were two other major stars in this film first was the 1961 ferrari gt california now cameron was correct when he says that there were only a hundred models of this car produced the producers of the film were able to secure one real 61 ferrari gt california but that was only used for shots where the car was parked any scenes involving the car actually driving were purpose-built replicas to give you some idea just how valuable that car was in 1986 the real car used on set was worth around 350000 And in recent years, models of the 61 GT California have sold for as high as $16 million. The other major character in Ferris Bueller's Day Off was the city of Chicago. Hughes went to painstaking lengths to include many of the city's most famous landmarks, including the Sears Tower, Wrigley Field, the art institute of chicago now early i mentioned emilio Estevez was considered for the role of ferris although the role didn't go to him estevez's brother carlos estevez otherwise known as charlie sheen did have a cameo role in the movie when ferris's sister Jeannie is brought to the police station she's seated next to a man they converse for a few minutes first not getting along but eventually they end up making out on the couch in the police station you don't want to talk about your problem
4: with you are you serious
3: I'm serious
4: Blow yourself All right You want to know what's wrong?
1: I know what's wrong just want to hear you say
5: it In a nutshell, I hate my brother How's that?
1: That's cool Did you blow him away or something?
5: (laughs) No, not yet
4: i went home to confirm that the shithead was ditching school and when i was there a guy broke into the house i called the cops and they picked me up for making a phony phone call
1: what do you care if your brother ditches school
4: why should he get
5: to ditch when everybody else has to go you could ditch yeah
4: i'd get caught
1: so you're pissed off because he ditches and doesn't get caught is that it Basically. Basically. And your problem is you. Excuse me? Excuse you. You ought to spend a little more time dealing with yourself, a little less time worrying about what your brother does. That's just an opinion.
5: Mm. What, are you a psychiatrist?
4: No. Why don't you keep your opinions to yourself?
1: Somebody you should talk to.
4: If you say Ferris Bueller, you lose a testicle.
3: How you know him? Sheen made the decision to stay up for 48 hours straight to give himself the appearance of being terribly strung out on drugs. Bill Paxton, who had a very memorable role in Hughes's film Weird Science, was offered the role of the parking lot attendant who ends up going for a joyride in the Ferrari. Paxton turned down the part because he felt it was too small for him.
4: <laughs> Wrong. What? Not here.
2: We're not leaving the car here. Why not? Because we're not. I want the car back home where it belongs, right now. Come on, let's go.
5: Cameron, what's gonna happen to it? It's in the garage.
2: It could get wrecked, stolen, scratched, breathed on wrong. A pigeon could shit on it, who knows? Listen, will you calm down, please? I'm gonna give the guy a fiver to watch Look at him. Okay. Hey, how you doing? You speak English? Uh, what country do you think this is? Okay, listen, uh, I want you to take extra special care of this vehicle. Okay. Hey, no problem. Great. Trust me. Sir. Come on.
1: Come.
5: Relax.
2: Come on. Oh, you fellas have nothing to worry about. I'm a professional.
5: Professional what?
3: Ironically, Hughes never offered Bill Paxton another role in any of his movies. Now, I'd like to report that real love did blossom on the set of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Matthew Broderick and Jennifer Grey would go on to become engaged shortly after the movie, and the two actors that played Ferris's parents also became romantically involved after appearing together in the film. Filming of Ferris Bueller's Day Off started in early September 1985 and lasted into late October that year. The original cut of Ferris Bueller's Day Off was 2 hours and 45 minutes long. Several subplots had to be cut out of the film in order to bring it to its 1 hour and 40 minute runtime. What's interesting is that if you watch the original 1986 trailer for the film, you can clearly see some of these deleted scenes, including a locker room scene involving Jeannie and Ferris's mother talking to Ferris's younger brother in a car. The fact that Ferris has two younger siblings was completely cut out of the movie altogether. In the show notes of this episode, I've included a link to that original 1986 trailer. Ferris Bueller's Day Off was released on June 11, 1986 and was an instant hit with audiences. The film took in just over 70 million in theaters. That, of course, is 30 years ago, so that's a huge sum of money. Critics also applauded the film. Time magazine's Richard Schickel wrote, Ferris and his adventures represent a teen's dream of glory. To have, at one's fingertips, the technical skills to sabotage the adult world's machinery of oppression. And, at the tip of one's tongue, the perfect squelch for grown-ups' moralistic blather. For years there was talk of a sequel, but thankfully that didn't happen. But that wasn't the end of the Ferris Bueller story. No, in 1990, Paramount Television adapted a TV series based on the film. The show was simply called Ferris Bueller. John Hughes was not involved in any aspect of this TV show and asked that his name not be used in any way when it came to the marketing of the show.
2: Life is one damn thing after another. Mark Twain said that after he changed his name. I'm Ferris Bueller, and I've never changed mine. Once they put me up on the big screen, it was out of the question. But come on,
1: Matthew Broderick as me? No way. He's too white bread, too two-dimensional, too too tootsie. Goodbye.
3: Ferris Bueller, the TV show, was canceled mid-season after just 13 episodes. And although most people don't even remember this show at all, it's notable for one thing. A very young Jennifer Aniston plays Ferris's sister, Jeannie, in the show. A few years ago, while working as a fine dining waiter, I decided to have a little fun at the expense of the hostesses that worked the front door and handled reservations. I dipped into a private room, made a call on my cell phone, and phoned the restaurant. The hostesses answered and asked, how may I help you? I disguised my voice and said that I needed a reservation for three people tomorrow night. She said, no problem, what's the name? I told her to put the reservation under the name Abe Froman and that he was a very important man flying in from Chicago. Again, she said, no problem. And I again told her that Mr. Froman is an extremely well-known man in Chicago and that this would be a very important table. She replied, wow, what does he do? I said, Abe Froman is the sausage king of Chicago. She said confidently, okay, Mr. Froman will have the best table in the house. I thanked her, trying my best not to laugh, and hung up the phone. The rest of the evening went by uneventful. When I arrived at work the next day, my manager asked me to sit down. He began to spell out just how important the job is that the hostesses do, that they have to handle a number of different tasks, and he wasn't sure that I fully understood this. Looking at him a little puzzled, I said, sure, no, I understand completely. He replied, well, then what's this? He held up a paper copy of the evening seating chart. This is a chart that shows where all the reservations will be sat for the night, along with special notes about each reservation. And wouldn't you know it, written on the chart next to what we consider the best table in the house was the following abe frohman party of three this is a very important table we need to have our best waiter on it this guy is the sausage king of chicago now my manager was a smart guy with a good sense of humor he looked at me and said do you understand why i sat you down now i do i told him he started to crack up as he told me how the hostesses desperately called him before he arrived to tell him that abe frohman would be coming in that night and could she reserve the best table for him
5: can we please get the hell out of here This place gives me the creeps. Why didn't you tell me you were coming to it?
2: Hello, may I help help you? You can sure as hell try. Hi, I'm Abe Froman. Party of three for 12... (laughs) Is there a problem? You're Abe Froman. That's right. I'm Abe Froman. The sausage king of Chicago. Yeah, that's me. Listen, young man, entre nous, I'm very busy here. Why don't you take the kids and go back to the clubhouse? Are you suggesting that I'm not who I say I am? I'm suggesting that you leave before I have to get snooty. Snooty? Snotty. Snotty? Okay, Abe, let's go. <laughs> no, I'm not going anywhere. No, we like to be seated. Listen, young man, either you take the field trip outside or I'm going to have to call the police. The pol- You're going to call the police on me? Yes. Fine. As a matter of fact, I'll call them myself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> call <Cold> the police.
3: <sighs> this will be a hoot. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.
5: Ed Rooney.
2: Ed, this is George Peterson.
5: How are you today, sir?
2: Well, we've had a bit of bad luck this morning, as you may have heard.
5: Yeah, I heard, and oh, I'm all broken up. Boy... What a blow.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, it's been a tough morning, and uh we've got a lot of family business to take care of, so if you wouldn't mind excusing Sloane, I'd uh, appreciate it.
5: Uh, uh sure. No, I'd be happy to. Yeah, you uh you you just produce a corpse and uh I'll release Sloane. I wanna see this dead grandmother firsthand. It's all right, Grace. It's Ferris Bueller a little twerp. I'm gonna set a trap and let him fall right into it.
2: Uh, uh, Ed, I'm, I'm sorry, did did you say
5: you wanted to see a body? Yeah, that's right, just uh, roll her old bones on over here and I'll dig up your daughter. You know that
2: school policy. Oh. Uh, was this your mother? Uh, no, my wife's mother. Ed Rooney's office. Hi, this is Ferris Bueller, can I speak to Mr. Rooney, please? Thank you.
4: Uh, hold on.
2: Tell you what, dipshit,
5: you don't like my policies, you can just come on down here and smooch my big old white butt. can Pucker up, buttercup. What?
1: Paris Bueller's online, too.
2: Hey, Mr. Rooney, how you doing? Listen, uh, I'm sorry to disturb you at work, but I'm not feeling very well today. And I was wondering if it might be possible for my sister to bring home any assignments for my classes that I might need. Have a nice day.
5: (laughs) Mr. Peterson? Uh Um... Yeah, no, I, I, I think I owe you an apology, sir. Well, I should say you do. I, uh. I, I, I. Well, I think you should be sorry, for Christ's sake. A family member dies, and you insult me. What the hell is the matter with you, anyway? Uh, uh, uh. Well, I, uh, I, I really don't know, sir. I mean, I, I didn't think I was talking to you. I thought I was talking to somebody else. You know, sir, that I would never deliberately insult you like that. I, I, I can't begin to tell you how embarrassed I am. Pardon my French, but you're an asshole. What? Do you want? Asshole? Uh, you're absolutely right, sir. You've hit the nail right in the head. I find out where she is. This isn't over yet, Buster. Do you read me? Uh, loud and clear, Mr. Peterson. Call me, sir. God damn it. Yes, 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 sir. Yes, sir.
2: That's better. <laughs> you just mind your P's and Q's, Buster, and remember who you're dealing with. Bueller. Ferris Bueller.